I think that teachers can be an incredible resource in shifting the focus that we have on weight to something more meaningful, like wellness, like holistic well-being, like a student reaching their full potential. So I think teachers are a part of this vision that we might have to make a difference in the lives of children. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Ever Active Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Shelley Russell Mayhew, a faculty member at the University of Calgary and registered psychologist who runs the Body Image Lab, and she's here to talk about weight-neutral health promotion in the school setting. I'm here today with Dr. Shelley Russell Mayhew. I was lucky enough to be a member of her Body Image Research Lab. She's an expert on eating disorder prevention and weight bias in the school setting, and I'm sure we'll learn a lot from her today. But first, I always like to ask my guests how they take care of their own well-being because one of the reasons why we are doing this content by podcast is the hope that you can take some time to get outside or maybe catch up on some chores or whatever you need to do. Maybe you're commuting to work or school today and this is how you are learning this content. But I'm curious to know, Shelley, what habits you have found to be useful to take care of the many dimensions of your well-being? Yeah, I think what's the most successful strategy for me is to block time off in my schedule for myself. So that's the first thing that goes into my weekly calendar is the hour or so of time in the day that I'm going to do something, whether that's go for a walk or that might be coloring or I have an obsession with painting furniture. I really love to do that. So I usually block off that first and then the other stuff works around that. So unless I block the time, like it's an appointment with myself, I oftentimes don't get around to doing it. So I consider that a commitment that I keep. Hmm. I like that. You do have to make it a priority and especially, you know, as you get busy, it's easy to say, oh, I can just push that off to another day, but that day is just not going to be as enjoyable or productive if you don't keep those commitments. It's a good tip. Yeah, I think so too. And I, the other thing that I often do is, and I would be doing now if we weren't recording, <laughs> is try to find times when I'm doing work that I can multitask. For example, if I'm on a phone call or something that I don't need to be at the computer for, I might fold laundry or tidy my desk or do some kind of movement with my body so that I'm not just sitting at the computer all day long. So I try to squeeze things in so that there is a little bit of movement happening during the day as well. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experience. I know you're a registered psychologist, but how did you come to become an expert and be so passionate about school health promotion? Yeah, that's interesting. So I call myself an accidental comprehensive school health researcher because really my area of interest in my research program centers around weight-related issues. So I study things like obesity, eating disorders, body image, weight bias, And I've always had a passion for trying to prevent those issues from happening. And 
the best place to do that is in schools. And so uh, I did a lot of studying around, you know, how do we prevent eating disorders in schools early in my career? But I discovered that oftentimes those parachute type programs that come in that are not connected to the other things that are happening in the school community are not sustainable programs. And the best way, I think, to impact weight in schools is to do that through a comprehensive school health framework, which is much more comprehensive and much more sustainable for the school community. That proves to be true, not just with eating disorders, but that was kind of my entry point into comprehensive school health. Yeah. And I think it's important to talk about the concept of weight because it's really talked about a lot in our culture. And I think we often don't dissect what are, what are we actually talking about? A lot of times health is simplistically linked with weight, but I've learned it's a lot more complicated than that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the common myths or misconceptions around weight in our culture. And why do you think we are so quick to assume something about others based on their weight? Yeah, I think that could be a podcast in itself. So <laughs> so we'll just do an overview of that. I mean, teachers and staff and the adult, the allied adults in a school community are not immune to the larger narratives in our culture around weight. And I think one of the most common misconceptions is that weight is somehow a reasonable proxy for health, that if we know someone's weight, we know how healthy they are. And that is proved to be false in the research. So Weight is not a proxy for health and body mass index, which is a measurement that was meant for population-based studies, has been used to classify people, individuals, in ways that turn out not to be so helpful for knowing how healthy someone is. So I think there's a lot of assumptions made about weight that actually don't stand up to research. I think other assumptions about weight include things like somehow it's a simple equation that it's like how much energy you put in your body versus how much energy comes out of your body. And it's not that simple. There's over 300 factors involved in how someone lands on a particular number on the scale. Uh, so I think these larger narratives really simplify a very complex problem. And I think also the focus on the physiological components of weight, the physical components of weight, have us missing out on very important factors like what is someone's relationship to their body? How do they take care of their body? How do they feel about their body? Yeah. And I, I think I remember you explaining that to me once that there are, you know, people in overweight categories that can be metabolically healthy. Likewise, there are people in the so-called healthy weight it can be unhealthy. You can't assume just based on someone's weight that you understand the entirety of their health. But it's a shorthand that is really common in the media, partially from the dieting industry and partially just, I don't know, I think in modern times, we sort of simplify complex things. Yeah, and certainly the media does, right? In some ways, that's their job, right? It's just mm -hmm. to make something that's very complicated or very complex sort of easy to digest, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but for example, we know through research that diets don't work. Mm -hmm. We know that weight cycling, going up and down in weight is actually more harmful to your health than simply maintaining a weight that might be considered, um, you know, not in the normal category, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the interesting things from a teacher 
perspective, perhaps, is that if 80 to 90% of people fail the test, and we know that 80-90% of people who go on diets end up gaining back the weight they lost and usually more, which is what mm-hmm. weight cycling is. If a test did that, if if 80 to 90% of the students failed the test, is that a problem with the students or is that a problem with the test? Yeah. It's probably a problem with the test, right? It's so, not working. Yeah. And the diet industry, it counts on failure because people keep going back and paying money, right? So it's actually set up to have individuals fail or it wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar per year industry. And that's just one example of many industries that make the relationship that we have with weight in our culture so complex. And over time, all these messages that weight is easy to control, that it's better to be smaller than in a larger body... All of that creates what's called weight bias or weight stigma. For those who aren't familiar, can you explain what weight bias is? Yeah, so weight bias is really the negative attitudes or beliefs or assumptions or judgments that we have about people in large bodies. Now, there's explicit weight bias, so there's overtly negative attitudes. There's also implicit weight bias, which is conceptualized as sort of unconscious kinds of attitudes. And we know that in our culture, where people in large bodies are seen in a certain way, pretty much everyone, everyone has implicit weight bias. So you probably have weight bias and you don't even know it. So then weight stigma is actually the manifestation of that weight bias through the harmful social stereotypes that we see in our culture. So everyone has to more or less an extent, some weight bias. If you live in our culture, you do. Yeah, and this was part of my research was to talk to people about how and where they learned weight bias from because we're not born with it. It's something that we're socialized into. And I found that we often get a lot of messages at home from family and there is that sort of subtle messages from media. Very slowly we accumulate those messages of what's best and what's to be avoided in terms of bodies. But I did find that schools are a place where we learn a lot about weight bias, whether it's in the change room and overhearing people complain about their size, or it's witnessing others bullying students in larger bodies, or even compliments about weight loss or someone being in a smaller body implicitly teaches everyone around them that some bodies are better than others. What does the research also say about weight bias in the school setting? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably one of the most common forms and in quotes, acceptable forms of discrimination that happen in schools, in part because it's so ingrained in our culture. So Even, for example, a teacher saying to another teacher, boy, you look great. Have you lost weight? Mm -hmm. I mean, one would not think that that is a, we hear it all the time, not Mm -hmm. just in the school context, but everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if a a child overhears that, they learn a lot from that sentence, right? Mm -hmm. Losing weight is good. Being bigger is bad. I'm going to look better if I'm smaller. Like there's all sorts of messages that are implicit in that question. So 
even though it's ingrained in common, I think we need to look at what it is we're actually teaching students about the diversities of body sizes and what's acceptable in quotes and what's not. So teachers aren't immune to these ingrained societal narratives that, you know, manifest in different ways in the school, like some of the examples you said. So we really need to look at setting up the school environment so that all bodies belong. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the issue is that some of these conversations, actually, I think a lot of these conversations happen beyond a teacher's radar. Like I, as a teacher, I don't remember witnessing weight-based teasing, but I know it happened. And I think students, I'm a secondary teacher, so I think I might have gotten more students coming to me if I was maybe an elementary age, but I think by the time students are older, they might not feel comfortable even sharing with a teacher that someone has been teasing them about their weight. I think students feel a little more emboldened to say, if they've been teased for something like race or religion or something like that, they know that that's wrong, but there is just so much shame around weight in our culture. And because it's repeatedly depicted as something that you can control, I think it's kind of hidden because the research has shown that a lot of students are teased about weight in a variety of sized bodies, but I don't think teachers necessarily see it or hear all of it. Well, I think you've touched on a few important points there. And one is internalized weight bias. So oftentimes people who are on the receiving end of weight bias or weight stigma also are not immune to the discourses around what it means to live in a large body. So they feel like they're deserving of Mm -hmm. that kind of treatment. So they internalize these negative stereotypical beliefs about people's weight and size and feel like shameful and feel like I deserve to be treated as less than because my body is large. So, you know, I think that's one piece that's really important. So a student might be less inclined to come report that kind of weight-based teasing experience in part because they feel like they should be shamed, Mm -hmm. which is really sad, isn't it? It's just so sad. Yeah. And we know from the research that This shaming does not motivate anyone to improve their health or change their health behaviors. And that, in fact, it has the opposite effect of making people feel more self-conscious and less comfortable in their body, less willing to participate in physical education and sports. And it's not a positive thing for anyone, including, again, those who witness it or those who, you know, just overhear these messages. It's really something that we need to look seriously at. But I I would love to get your response. What should a teacher do if a student comes up to them and says, so-and-so called me fat? How do you handle that in a way that doesn't reinforce weight stigma? Yeah, you know, it's really tricky. I think what's important is, is we have to treat reports of weight or size-based bullying the same as we would treat any other derogatory exchange between students. And oftentimes they're they're seen as separate. And oftentimes in school policy, weight is not considered one of the isms that is part of the policy. So I think teachers receive training around how to deal with bullying with other isms like race. So it needs to be treated in the same way and as part of the same 
policy. So if a student comes up and reports that they've been teased because of their skin color, you're not going to say to the student, oh, no, you're not. Right, mm-hmm. which is the f- the first response that you know. I think instinctual response is to say, "Oh no, you're not fat." Right. I mean, that reinforces that fat is bad, and it actually doesn't really get at the issue of what's going on. So sometimes it stretches the brain a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's really important to respond to those reports the same way as you would any other type of teasing or bullying. Yeah. It's rude that somebody talked about your body, whether it's, you know, your skin or your ability or your body size or your height. It makes people uncomfortable when others talk about your body. That's the the wrong there, not calling someone fat, because then if we call that out as the crime, again, it's reinforcing that idea that being fat is a bad thing. Yeah, and I think with any other like teachable moment as a parent or as a teacher, uh, during the teen years when my daughter used to come to me to describe something that she was feeling, if I didn't validate her feeling before moving on, she let me know in all sorts of you know demonstrative ways that, mm-hmm. that she was feeling a particular way. So yeah. I do think we need to acknowledge that those feelings are important and connect with them on a feeling level. I think also what tends to happen is, unless guided otherwise, students will then blame their body for Mm -hmm. that feeling, right? They put that sense of shame, that feeling embarrassed, that all those feelings, they blame their body for that feeling, rather Mm -hmm. than understanding that really it was the interaction that's the problem, not their body, right? And fat is not a feeling. Mm-hmm. So we really need to look at, you know, what actually is the feeling? How can we identify that? And then how can we move that away from, you know, somehow putting that blame on what our physical self looks like? Yeah. What would you say to people who are concerned about increasing weights in children and that it's important to help them to be motivated to take care of their weight? What would you say that, you know, schools should be more worried and concerned about this? Well, I don't think weight has a place in schools. I think the job of schools is to make the community a place where every student feels like they belong. And we know that weight and shape concern, so feeling preoccupied with your body, feeling like you're concerned about your weight, that you need to lose weight or gain weight, we know that feeling that way is actually more important to a child's psychological well-being than actually what they weigh. So I think we have an obsession with physical well-being or the physical dimension of wellness as being the most important one. But we need to look at the whole child and what is their relationship with their body? What is their mental health and mental well-being status? Like, do they have a positive relationship with their body? We also know that if, if a child doesn't feel like their body is worth taking care of, they're less likely to take care of it. Just like, you know, as an adult, when we activate a goal and have negative affect, we're less likely to reach that goal. So I think the better worry, if worry is is the thing we want to be doing about weight, is to worry about what we're teaching children about how they develop a relationship with their body. And that includes all the dimensions of well-being. Mm-hmm. 
That's why I like comprehensive school health so much is that it really broadens the discussion about what types of health and well-being are important to consider at school. And your comments just now reminded me of a woman that I spoke to in my research who had her BMI calculated as part of a phys ed class, which I'm sure the teacher intended to do as part of a health promoting kind of activity. She had, I'm sure, good intentions, but this person had already felt very self-conscious about her weight and was spending a lot of her free time exercising and not eating enough. And she already knew that she had a BMI that a teacher would probably not approve of or put in in the normal range. And the experience was extremely traumatic for her. It was not at all health promoting, even though the teacher tried to create privacy and everyone came into the office to talk about their BMI with the teacher. Of course, all of the students afterwards were talking about their BMIs and the boys wanted to have higher BMIs and the girls wanted to have lower BMIs. And there was this comparing and she just felt so terrible it no longer was a private concern. It had become a public concern and there was no way out of it. And I'm sure the teacher did not think about how will this affect my students' social and emotional and psychological well-being to do this little activity. Yeah, and that's a great example of how weight and BMI does not belong in a school at all, because we know that physical activity and healthy eating can benefit everyone across health status. So making someone feel bad is not going to motivate those kinds of healthy behaviors. And I also think that there is probably other unintended consequences, even for children and youth that would not be classified you know, at a higher BMI, whatever that means. So I think it's important to recognize that measuring and weighing in schools potentially does harm and harm that we might not even recognize yet. And for pretty certain does not do anything to advance health behaviors. Mm -hmm. So a lot of your earlier research focused on eating disorder prevention, and now more of your research is about weight bias. What do you think is the connection between weight bias and eating disorders? That's a pretty hard question. I don't think we actually know in the research about that. I can give you some of my ideas around that. So I think weight bias could potentially be a construct that actually helps bridge the eating disorder field and the obesity field. And normally these fields sort of work separately and in some ways they work against each other where eating disorder prevention is concerned about the types of messages that obesity prevention programs might mm -hmm. give and vice versa, right? So I think weight bias might actually be a way that we can get these fields to work together better. I also think that weight bias is actually a manifestation of social inequity. And so I don't think that we consider enough in our approaches to weight the social determinants of health. So I think weight bias is a manifestation of people, for example, not having access to fresh fruits and vegetables or not having sidewalks in their communities. So I think these things are really beyond the individual and weight bias as a social justice issue might actually help us see outside what we're talking about as an individual problem when really it is a societal problem, not only in 
how we see it or talk about it or the social narratives, but also in how inequities exist. Yeah, and I think the the most compelling evidence to support that is that we do see a higher proportion of people with higher weights in lower socioeconomic classes. So there is something about the continual stress of poverty and those those social determinants of health that are impacting body size. And so when we talk about weight as just something that you can individually control, just mind over matter and you can take care of it, we are forgetting all of those factors that people don't have control over, but do have an impact on all aspects of our well-being. Absolutely. And another example, so use poverty as an example, another example is gender. So we know that women in large bodies are disproportionately disadvantaged Mm -hmm. in education, in workplace, in promotions, in entry to graduate school, relative to their male counterparts that live in large bodies. So there are gender issues, there are equity issues, there are class issues, there's a whole bunch of social determinants of health Mm -hmm. that influence weight. And those need to be considered as part of the story, as part of the context. What do you wish teachers understood about eating disorders? Are there things that we can do to prevent the growing number of people who are affected by them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important first for teachers to never assume that students who live in large bodies are unaware of their status. So they're reminded on a daily basis in all sorts of cruel and unusual ways that their bodies are different. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing about eating disorders particularly that's important is that there's been some evidence that when we talk about the signs and the symptoms and the causes and the consequences of eating disorders, what we actually do is increase the at-risk behaviors. I mean, at best, we do nothing with that information. At worst, what we might be doing is causing harm. Mm -hmm. So my approach to eating disorders in schools has been to focus on not on the disease or the disorder but to focus on issues like the thin ideal like the dangers of dieting media representations of men and women to focus on critical thinking to focus on emotional health to normalize puberty changes to look at problem solving and decision making type skills so It's looking at a larger holistic vision rather than focusing on illness. Let's focus on wellness. And I think in the end, what happens is we actually prevent all sorts of different issues or we potentially actually increase the wellness. So we don't know what students in our classroom are already at risk. Mm -hmm. You can't assume, yeah. No. And oftentimes with eating disorders, it's the perfect student. It's a straight A student. It's a student that's trying to please you. It's the student that's got, you know, some perfectionism. It's the student you love to teach because they do everything you ask, right? Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) They might show up quite differently. So I think focusing on the whole child, focusing on all the dimensions of wellness and focusing on wellness instead of illness actually serves us better in a school. And that's kind of that upstream approach that is the comprehensive school health focus. I talked with Scott Bailey about this, that focusing on positive mental well-being is likely going to be more effective than focusing on avoiding certain drugs in a school. It's that same idea of let's 
create an environment where students feel positive about themselves and about their bodies rather than let's teach students what anorexia and bulimia are. Yeah, like let's think about what's most mm-hmm. useful, right? Having them be able to define that illness and all of the diagnostic criteria yeah. or, you know, having a student have some problem solving, some critical thinking. So I think it's about utility. There's a limited amount of time in schools to directly address health and wellness issues. So let's make sure that we do that in a way that has the most benefit for the most students. So how do we then model and promote healthy behaviors, whether it's eating nutritious food or physical activity, how can we promote those things without vulnerable students taking them up in disordered ways? It's hard to know if someone is, as we've said, at risk for developing an eating disorder. How can we make sure that we aren't planting seeds that will eventually become someone's preoccupation? Oh, you you ask really (laughs) tough questions, hey? So I think it's about taking away the numbers. So making sure that there's not some kind of competition. I hear stories about schools that discuss healthy weights and that even display students' Mm -hmm. weights on the walls in schools or evaluate the students' weights, like categorize them. Certainly there's school resources like textbooks and stories that have thin ideal type messages. So I think there are ways to address in a health promoting way, healthy eating, physical activity, positive mental well-being in ways that advantage all students regardless of where they start. And I also think that we need to expand our programming at schools beyond healthy eating and physical activity. Oftentimes, those are the two things that are focused on because they're the most tangible. But we do need to look at positive mental well-being as well because they're all interconnected. So I would say, take the competition Mm -hmm. out of it. Take this obsession with measurement somehow out of it. It needs to be a relational approach that it's about the relationship the student has with their body and it's about the relationship the teacher has with their students and that the school has with the community. So it's much more of a nested, I think, approach to how we promote health in schools. Yeah, and I think we want to promote students to see health from the insider view of their body instead of the outside. And I think you can do that in subtle ways like I really enjoy how I feel after I've gone for a walk or eating these foods make me feel energetic and ready to concentrate on what we have to do this afternoon. Or I slept great last night, so I'm going to be so patient with you guys today. (laughs) You know, there's just small ways that we can show how health is about how we feel and how we function in our bodies and that it enables us to do more when we can take care of our bodies. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is an embodied approach to health, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about some external measurement or external number or some external judgment or evaluation from another. It's about how we experience our bodies in the world. How do our bodies feel? How do we feel? How do specific behaviors help or hinder our goals or get us closer to our values? 
this is not a way that's commonly looked at, uh, an embodied way of understanding well-being is often not discussed because when media takes these things up, it's all about external evaluations. And the images we see, for example, in stories about obesity is a large person and their head is cut off, right? It's a disembodied way of looking at the world. And if we can, in schools, take up health and well-being in ways that help the children live and be in their bodies, then we've set them up for a relationship in their lives with their bodies that will serve them in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And I think the messages that we share as teachers through our media that we choose is really important. I'm a language arts teacher by training. And I think the books that you have your students read can subtly reinforce certain ideas. I've been more careful about certain books now that I know more about weight bias. I think, for instance, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. It's a great book, but it does really sort of blame large bodies on gluttony and it's really sort of villainized. And there's been a few books that my kids have read. There's one called Every Day by David Leviathan. It's an interesting idea where someone wakes up in a different body every day and they have a lot of empathy for every single different body that they inhabit except for the person in a large body. Mm. It's so cruel the way that chapter, it's like maybe two thirds into the book. And I just wanted to throw it across the room because it's recommended as a text to teach students empathy. And that's the one body that that person cannot have empathy for. I think there's lots of different books like that from the elementary age up to high school that subtly reinforce weight bias. So that's one area where teachers can have a, an influence. And if it does come up in something that you're reading, you can dissect it just like you would if you were teaching Othello, you would talk about racism. This is something that we need to talk about with our students. Yeah, for sure. So it sounds like that resource isn't so subtle, but I think choosing the resources wisely, teachers can do that. So they can find ways to promote body diversity. So there's a number of wonderful resources, I think, that take up body diversity in really compelling ways. So there's like Full Mouse, Empty Mouse. There's a book called Shapesville. And I agree, sometimes we we don't have as much flexibility, like there's Alberta Education Approved Resources. But if those factors do come up, then it's important to look at that and to critique that with your students to teach them. I think another thing that we can do is we can reflect on our school environment. Mm -hmm. Like where are the desks and are the desks in such a way that people with all bodies can feel comfortable? What about locker access? Like I think we can look at, is the school environment set up to help all children feel like they're a part of the community that they belong? Yeah, absolutely. That's touching to the physical environment, which is part of comprehensive school health to make sure that physically people feel like there's enough room and that they are welcome at school. How else do you think teachers can proactively establish What we're really talking about is weight inclusive or weight neutral health promotion. How can we be weight neutral in our classrooms? I think the most important thing is about our relationship with students. So how are we connecting with students? And the first thing I think is we need to reflect on our own 
everyone has weight bias. So we need to assess our own behaviors and attitudes regarding weight and eating, the attitudes we have towards ourselves, but also the attitudes we have towards others. And I think we also need to look at not blaming the individual, but considering environmental and policy and systems kind of change. So I think there are ways to take up these topics that allow for a diversity of opinions, but also recognize that weight-based teasing is, anecdotally at least, the most frequent form of teasing that takes place in schools. And we need to be sure that all of our students feel safe in the school. Yeah, I'm learning more about the power of visuals. I think I discounted them as a, as a teacher when I was in the classroom. I just sort of would keep whatever was left in the classroom. But I've learned more about their power as a pedagogical tool, especially for students that might have learning differences, that to have a message physically in the space reinforcing something like everybody deserves respect or all bodies are good bodies. That that if that's in your classroom all the time, you don't have to say it necessarily all the time because it's being said in the background. So I think there are subtle ways that we can just put the idea out there. And we have to remember that students are coming with a lot of notions about body and weight from home and from the media. And so it's not like they're showing up as a blank slate. But we could be that person that shows a different way. Neva Peron's research suggests that just one person that has a positive relationship with their body can make the difference for someone having a positive relationship with their own. And so I love the idea that teachers can be that one person for those vulnerable students. Yeah, and I love Neva Peron's quote, actually, where she encourages teachers not to do prevention, but to be prevention, mm -hmm. right? There's a difference. And also your idea about the posters or about the visual cues, those visual cues are in a school. It's about whether we're purposeful and intentional about what those visuals are saying about who's acceptable and who's not. And because weight bias is so ingrained, I think sometimes those visuals are reinforcing notions of weight bias, maybe even beyond our awareness. So I love the idea, all bodies are good bodies, or everybody belongs, or whatever kinds of sayings that we might want to use in the classroom to stake a claim about what is acceptable in my classroom. Yeah, and I don't know if those posters are out there yet. I know there's a lot of motivational cat posters. <laughs> But maybe, maybe you might have to make your own poster or start selling. Maybe we should start selling our own posters, Shelly. <laughs> oh, hey, we got a business plan but now. Yeah, I think there are ways that we can proactively remind students that everyone is welcome. But what about teachers who feel like they have their own story or trauma around weight? Of course, we are in this culture too. We know from the research that more teachers have issues with disordered eating and eating disorders than the general population. So we are not immune from these discourses. How can we make sure that we're not passing down our own problems with weight that we have inherited? Yeah, I mean, this is the golden question for parents as well, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Like, how do we not generationally pass along these toxic messages and feelings that we have towards our bodies. So I would say a teacher doesn't necessarily have to have it all figured out in order to be 
a person that can positively influence a child's relationship with their bodies. I think, of course, there's developmentally appropriate ways of going about this, but I think it ultimately comes down to values. So like, what is it really all about? What are we trying to do as teachers? What do we value as teachers? What do we want our students to leave our classroom understanding or knowing about the world and about their relationship to it? And so I think if we can hold our values about why we became a teacher in the first place, this becomes the foundation to build upon. I think there's an incredible amount of pressure for teachers to do all sorts of things. And somehow there's this notion that teachers have to be these perfect superhero type human beings. But it's maybe in our own struggle that we can have empathy or understanding for what it is our students are going to or are facing. So I think it's self-awareness. I think it's self-reflection. And I think it's about being really purposeful and intentional with what it is we're doing and saying with our students in relationship to food, to eating, to our bodies, to physical activity. I think we need to be intentional. Yeah. And careful to not talk about students' bodies. And I've done this where I've said, there was a window open in the classroom, just a crack. <laughs> and we like we couldn't open it any further. And, and we made some joke that it wasn't dangerous, even though there wasn't a screen, because nobody could fit through that. And I mentioned that, oh, one student probably could, because he was really tall and thin. And I felt bad as soon as I said it. I knew that it was drawing attention to his body. But we make these mistakes. And I talked to him afterwards and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make you self-conscious. And he's like, oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter. But I think we have to be careful because students, especially teenagers, as their bodies are changing, they're so self-conscious about all those changes. And mm. we don't need to draw attention to how tall someone is or anything like that because it's just not our place. Our place as teachers is to help them to see all the great talents and skills and abilities that they have and that are growing. And we can foster so much growth in students that has nothing to do with their physical appearance. And that's really a safe place for students to be where an adult sees them for, I'm a good writer, or I'm a really good singer, or I'm a good artist. That can be so healing for someone who has a troubled relationship with their body to see the parts of themselves that have nothing to do with their physical appearance, but that are good and that people value. Absolutely. And when I think about the teachers, like my favorite teachers and the teachers that had the most influence on my life, it wasn't because they were the best looking teacher. It was because they brought out in me something that I didn't know I had, right? They saw the potential in me. They focused on areas of strength. We had a shared interest in something. Like, I mean, there are teachers from K to 12 that enormously influenced my path to getting a PhD, you know, and it's only looking back now that I recognize and realize that these were teachers that were very relational, that focused on strengths, that saw my potential and fostered that potential in me. It had nothing to do with what I was eating or how I looked. You know, teachers are our most important resource for increasing students' sense of well-being. Like, I can't think of anyone else. Like, outside of the home, mm -hmm. children and youth spend the most time in schools. So 
teachers are a fundamental resource to how our children embody the world. Mm -hmm. Not pressure, an invitation. (laughs) Yeah. And we don't have to do that perfectly. Like I remember a teacher in school, like similar to your story, coming to me after about an interaction that took place that they thought about and then apologized Mm -hmm. for, right? Or my daughter recently actually had a phys ed teacher phone her to apologize for an interaction that they had during gym class. Well, what a wonderful teachable moment for my daughter to realize that, you know, teachers are human and they make mistakes and that when you recognize them, you apologize. You know, I couldn't think of a better teachable moment than that. She'll probably remember that more than the comment in the gym class. I think absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So let's end on this question. What do you think a teacher could do right away if they realize, you know what, I think I could be doing more to lessen weight bias in my school community? What could they start doing tomorrow? What what would you want teachers to come away from this conversation with? Well, I think something that teachers could do today is to really take a look at their own relationship with their body, what kind of implicit and explicit messages they have and they hold about weight, and to consider the utility of those, to consider how that might affect their interaction with their students. So I think weight is distracting in schools. It's not an appropriate target for behavior modification. And regardless of the size or shape or weight of the student, individuals across the weight spectrum can benefit from things like less screen time, more time outdoors, healthy eating, an increased sense of self or an increased sense of embodiment of how their bodies are in the world. So I think it starts with teachers doing their own work around things they might have already known about themselves, but things that they hadn't considered before. So I think that teachers can be an incredible resource in shifting the focus that we have on weight to something more meaningful, like wellness, like holistic well-being, like a student reaching their full potential. So I think teachers are a part of this vision that we might have to make a difference in the lives of children. Thank you. And do you have any recommended resources for people who might want to know more about weight inclusive health? This might be a new, (laughs) a new way to approach well-being. And do you have any recommendations? Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of resources that are available that I think address weight in ways that people might not have considered before. So there's, for example, the Rudd Center talks about weight bias uh, in schools in ways that we may not have considered before. There's health at every size movement. There's academic articles that I think take up this notion of what is weight centric versus weight neutral and what that means for education. There's a number of websites and resources that I think have sort of been vetted to Mm -hmm. so that weight is taken up in ways or not taken up in ways, I guess, that we know won't do harm. Because often health promoting messages might have those weight centric ideas built in. So it's something that I think teachers need to vet resources for because it's really common for health promotion to include something about weight. And so 
hopefully this will empower teachers to know that that's actually not health promoting and to take those parts out of the lesson. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there are some resources where you wouldn't really have to change much to make it weight neutral. And those, I I guess we can list those in the notes or something. Yeah, for sure. We'll put those in the show notes. The thing I would want to say would be that health promotion is our way forward for preventing a whole bunch of issues or concerns that might be prominent in our culture. So the focus on weight is an illness-based approach to things. And if we really want to have healthy school communities, we need to promote health and focus on health for everyone, not focus on specific illness and disease. Mm -hmm. So I think health promotion is our way forward in schools. Well said. Thank you so much, Dr. Shelley Russell Mayhew, for taking the time to share your experience and research on this important topic. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a serious collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Ever Active Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website, everactive.org, for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed. <laughs>